You're listening to the sermon audio for English Ministries at Tri-City Chinese Christian Church. We meet on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. at the Kyle Center in Port Moody, British Columbia. We are continuing in our series in the story of God, and we are finishing off our time in Genesis. We've been in there for quite a few weeks. I think it's probably the book that we'll spend the most time in here, and then we're kind of one book, one message, pretty much, going forward here. So we have talked about creation, the fall, Abraham, uh, and then last week, Isaac and Jacob. Um, and now we come into Jacob's sons, particularly Joseph. So we see that Jacob manipulates and deceives his way into his brother's birthright and blessing and into his wealth of flocks of sheep. And he really is this big culmination of this family history of lying. Uh, and a good chunk of his early life is marked by deception. Then after wrestling with God, he's transformed into a man of stronger faith. Um, but the family's history of deception and how a lot of that family has been formed out of this deception starts having real consequences within the family itself. Um, so Jacob has 12 sons, and as brothers do, they fight with each other, especially when there's so many of them. And Jacob exasperates this problem of conflict between the sons by having a favorite, and his favorite is Joseph, who's the firstborn of his beloved Rachel. And he dotes upon Joseph, and even gives him a very fancy coat. And Joseph is also one of his favorites because um, Rachel dies and given birth to the youngest, which is Benjamin, and Joseph's the second youngest. And so now Rachel, his wife that he loved, is gone as well. And so Joseph is the favorite of Jacob causes jealousy amongst the other 11 brothers, particularly the 10 who aren't born from Rachel. And Joseph also doesn't help his case and that he pokes and he prods his brothers. And so what happens is he has this dream that he decides to share with his brothers. And he dreams that they were out in the field gathering wheat. And they each gathered wheat and they put their wheat into a bundle and put it on the ground. And then Joseph's bundle of wheat stands up and his brothers' bundles of wheat all come around and bow down to Joseph's bundle of wheat. And the brothers were quite indignant with this dream. What is this dream that you're having? Who do you think you are? You think we're going to come and bow down before you? And Joseph doesn't learn his lesson from their reaction to him sharing his dream uh, because he has another dream and he decides to share it with them again. And he dreams of the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down before him. And he shares this one and this time he shares it in front of his father and his father uh, lectures him. What is with this dream? Your mother and me and your brothers are all going to bow down to you? And so his brothers scoff at this dream and grow in their hatred of Joseph. Uh, but Jacob keeps this dream in his mind. One day Joseph's brothers are out watching uh, their flocks of sheep and Jacob wants to get a report of how everything is going with them. So he sends Joseph out to go get a report from the brothers and come back and give it to Jacob. So 
Joseph uh, goes out and he eventually finds his brothers out in the field, but they can see him coming from a long way off. And they start talking to each other. Ah, here comes the dreamer in his fancy coat. How about we kill him? And then we'll see if his dreams can come true then. But Reuben, who's the oldest of all the brothers, doesn't want to kill Joseph. And so he convinces them, let's just throw him in this well uh, and just do that. And then Reuben's plan was to come back later, let Joseph out of the well, and bring him back to his father. So they decide this, Joseph comes, they rough up Joseph a little bit, they chuck him in a well that's been dried out, and put a cover over top of it. Then Reuben goes to go watch the flocks while the rest of the brothers sit and eat some lunch. And as they're eating lunch, this um, caravan of Ishmaelites start traveling by on their way to Egypt. And Judah, who's the second oldest, I believe, <laughs> comes up with an idea of what are we really going to gain by killing our brother? How about we sell him to these Ishmaelites? At least then we'll get some money off of it and he'll be off of our backs. And so they wave the Ishmaelites over, they sell Joseph to them. Reuben comes back from the sheep and panics that he sees that Joseph isn't in the well anymore. So the brothers together come up with this plot. They take Joseph's robe, they rip it up, they kill a goat, dip the rope in um, the blood, and then bring it to Jacob and say, hey, is this your son's coat? And Jacob right away recognizes it as Joseph's, and he mourns, and he believes that his favorite son has been killed at the hand of some wild animals. And it says that Jacob mourns and grieves his son Joseph, and he will not be comforted. He just keeps mourning and grieving and grieving. Meanwhile, during this time, uh, Joseph is taken to Egypt where he is sold to a man named Potiphar. And it's, God is with Joseph and he blesses everything that Joseph does. And he blesses Potiphar's household because of Joseph. And Potiphar recognizes this and he raises Joseph up in ranks and he becomes the head of Joseph's household. And then here we see that beauty becomes a problem again. Abraham and Isaac both grew afraid because of the beauty of their wives, uh, Sarah and Rebecca. And now here, Joseph's beauty causes problems for him. Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to the good-looking man, Joseph, and tries to get him to come into bed with her, but he refuses. He says he's been entrusted with all that Potiphar has, and how could he betray that trust and betray his God by sleeping with Potiphar's wife? But every day, Potiphar's wife says, come to bed with me. And every day, Joseph says no. And then one day, the servants are all out of the house. Potiphar's out of the house. And it's just Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And she seizes him by his coat and tries to drag him off into bed with her. But he wiggles out of his coat and he flees. She feels quite slighted and quite offended by the actions of Joseph. But she realizes that she still has his coat. And so she waits till Potiphar comes home and says, that foreigner that you have brought into our house tried to go to bed with me. But when I shouted for help, he came out of his coat and he fled. And Potiphar grows irate at this, and he has Joseph thrown into jail. But again, God is with Joseph in jail, and he grows in favor with his guards. And eventually, they place him in charge over his fellow prisoners. And the warden doesn't have to worry that Joseph is, when Joseph is in charge. And during this time, 
Pharaoh gets angry with his baker and his cupbearer, and he has them thrown in jail as well. And they both have dreams that trouble them one night. And they start sharing these dreams with one another, and Joseph hears them sharing these dreams and says, hey, I've been able to interpret dreams in the past, so why don't you tell me your dreams, and maybe I can give you what they mean. So the cupbearer goes first, and he dreams that he saw a vine, and on the vine grew three branches. And these branches blossomed and then grew and ripened into grapes. And the cupbearer took the grapes and he squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed them into Pharaoh's hand. Joseph tells him that the three branches represent three days. In three days, he's going to be restored to his position as Pharaoh's cupbearer. And the cupbearer is actually doesn't just hand Pharaoh his wine cup, but he actually is, works a little bit as an advisor as well. So that's a position that has a little bit of power too. And so Joseph says, remember me when you get restored to your position and plead my case before Pharaoh, for I've been wrongfully imprisoned here. Well, the baker hears this interpretation of the dream and he sees that it's a good interpretation. So he excitedly shares his dream. He dreamt that he had three baskets of baked goods that were on top of his head. Um, but birds kept swooping down and eating out of the basket. So Joseph tells, tells him, oh, those three baskets also represent three days. In three days, you're going to be taken out of prison, uh, and Pharaoh's going to behead you and impale you on a pole. Well, three days later, it was Pharaoh's birthday, and he brought out his cupbearer and his baker, and he restored the cupbearer to his position but he beheads the baker and impales him on a pole. And the cupbearer is very pleased with his fortune, and so pleased that he forgets all about Joseph, who remains in prison. And there Joseph remains for two more years until Pharaoh has a dream that troubles him. He dreams that seven fat cows come out of the Nile and start eating the reeds around the river. And then shortly after, seven skinny, ugly cows come up, and they eat the seven fat, healthy cows. And Pharaoh wakes up, and he's confused by this dream, but he eventually falls back asleep where he has another dream. He dreams that seven heads of healthy grain grow on a single stalk of wheat, and then seven wispy heads of grain grow and swallow up these seven healthy grains. The next morning, he's so troubled by these dreams that he calls all the magicians and all the wise men of Egypt to come and make an interpretation of this dream. But none of them could tell him what the dream meant. And it was here that finally the cupbearer remembers Joseph and tells Pharaoh how when he was still in prison, this man came and shared the interpretation of both his dream and the baker's dream, and it came true. And so Pharaoh comes and he brings Joseph in and tells Joseph these dreams that he had. And Joseph tells him, these dreams have been given to you by God, and they both have the same interpretation. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of abundance. In those seven years, you're going to have really good growth in crops, extra than what you usually get. And then the seven ugly, skinny, sickly cows and the seven sickly heads of grain represent seven years of famine and they swallow up these healthy cows and healthy grain because the famine is going to be so intense that it's going to be like those years of abundance never occurred 
And then Joseph ventures to give Pharaoh some advice. During those years of abundance, store up the extra grain, and that way you'll have it when the years of famine come. And Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph that he puts him in charge of storing uh, and looking after all this extra grain. And it happens just as Joseph said, there's seven years of abundance and then starts seven years of intense famine. And Joseph gains power and rises in power until he's the most powerful man in Egypt, just behind Pharaoh himself. This famine stretches across all the known world and soon Jacob and his family has no food, but Jacob has heard that there's food in Egypt. So he decides to send 10 of his sons into Egypt to uh, get this grain, but he leaves behind Benjamin, keeps him with him, because now Benjamin is his new favorite. It's his only remaining son, only remaining son from his, um, his beloved Rachel. And so he sends his 10 sons to travel down to Egypt. And they arrive and they come to the person in charge of the grain, which is Joseph. But they don't recognize Joseph because he is dressed like an Egyptian. He's lived in Egypt for a while, so he's probably got a very nice tan going on as well. Um, and they come down and they bow before Joseph, just as Joseph had dreamt. And Joseph recognizes his brothers who sold him into slavery right away. But he doesn't reveal himself to them. And he begins questioning them. And he questions them as if they're spies. He claims that you guys are all spies coming in to try to find our weak point so you can attack us. And it's through pretending that they're spies that he's able to get information. Do you have a father still at home? Yes, we have a father still at home. And he's still well. Is this all of you, or do you have any other brothers at home? Yes, the brother is the youngest is still at home. And so Joseph says, I still think you're spies, but this is how you can prove to me that you're not. I'm going to give you a little bit of grain, but the next time you come, you have to bring your youngest brother. And to make sure you do, I'm going to put one of you in jail until you come back. And so he actually keeps all of them in custody for three days, and then he keeps Simeon in jail and sends the rest of them with grain. But he also puts all the gold and silver they used to pay for the grain back into their bags. And as they travel back to, uh, back to home with all this food, they look in their bags and they realize that all the silver and gold is still in there. And they are very afraid. And they start thinking, this is God punishing for us for what we've done to Joseph. Now Simeon is arrested. We have to bring Benjamin if we want to get him out. And we've just stolen grain from the Egyptians. So things are not going well for us. So they come back and they share this information with Jacob. <laughs> and Jacob is so protective of Benjamin that he's like, no, I don't want to send my son. And so they don't go back right away. They keep eating the grain they've gotten. And the whole time, Simeon remains in prison in Egypt. And so we see that favoritism. He'd rather keep Benjamin and not have him go to release Simeon and just let Simeon stay in prison in a foreign country. There are some problems with this family. But eventually they run out of grain and Jacob's like, go back and get food from Egypt. And they remind him, uh, Father, we have to bring Benjamin back with us or else they won't sell us grain and they'll probably arrest us, just as they've done Simeon. And it takes Judah going and saying, Father, I promise no harm is going to come to Benjamin. 
If any harm comes from, to him, you can do whatever you want with my children. And finally, Jacob is convinced. And so he sends all 11 of, well, I guess all 10, because Simeon's still in Egypt, uh, back to Egypt to get grain. And as they come, they are invited to Joseph's house. And Simeon is brought out of prison to go into the house. And as Joseph comes in, they immediately apologize. We swear we thought we paid for the grain, but when we were traveling back, we saw all the gold and silver in there. Joseph's like, oh, don't worry about it. I put your silver and gold back in the bags. And he serves them a meal. And they notice that Benjamin has five times more food than the rest of them. And they all eat together. And Joseph tells his servants to go fill their bags with as much grain as they can carry, put their silver and gold back in the bag again, and takes his goblet and puts it in Benjamin's bag. And then as they are released and traveling back to Egypt, Joseph sends the guards and goes himself and overtakes them and accuses them of stealing his fancy goblet, his favorite goblet. And they say, we swear we didn't steal your goblet. You can check our bags. If anyone's found with a goblet, you can kill them. This is the dramatic thing that they do in the ancient things, always just saying, if you find this, then you can kill someone. That's how they swore. It's a strange way to do. So he searches the bags, and of course it's in Benjamin's bag. And they all are distressed. Now that Benjamin, their favorite, or Jacob's favorite son, uh, they've basically just handed over to death. They say, again, this is punishment for what we've done to Joseph. And Judah steps in and says, My Lord, I, sweared, I swore to my father to protect him. This is his favorite son, the only one remaining from his beloved wife. Take me instead. If you kill him, then our father will die. And Joseph can't keep it in anymore. He sends away all his attendants, and he finally reveals himself to them. I am Joseph, your brother you sold into slavery. Is my father still alive? The brothers look in amazement at Joseph. Joseph is still alive, and he's the advisor to Pharaoh. So Joseph tells them, you must go back and get our father and his household and bring him back to Egypt. There's still many years left of this intense famine, but I have great favor with Pharaoh. He will come and give us a land to live in. So the brothers return to Jacob, report to their father all that has occurred. Jacob can hardly believe that his son's still alive. But he gathers his entire family and they all travel to Egypt, where they're reunited with Joseph. And they all come and they bow down before Joseph, fulfilling his other dream. And Pharaoh welcomes them all and allows them to settle in the land of Goshen. So Joseph's story is the last story of what we would call the age of the patriarchs. And in the patriarchs, we see uh, similarities and differences between, uh, in their stories. We see how they interact with these promises that they've been given and how they receive them. Abraham receives the promise directly from God and obeys where God leads him. He walks faithfully, faithfully and he patiently waits for it. It doesn't mean he doesn't question God. He questions God about his promises as he gets older and older more and more. But when God reassures him of these promises, he believes God and faithfully waits. For the most part, except for the whole Hagar thing where he tried to take into his own hands. And that didn't go well for him. Isaac receives the promise from Abraham uh, and kind of just waits. 
for the most part. He's definitely the most passive out of all of the patriarchs. And then his son Jacob swings to the opposite side of the, spec of the uh, pendulum and is by far the most aggressive of it. He manipulates and he deceives in the way to get the promise. The promise that's given to him through the prophecy given to his mother, Rebecca, before he's born, that the younger will serve the older. But he works and deceives and manipulates to make sure that comes true. Um, Joseph assumes the promise through his dreams and he goes about bragging and proclaiming about it to his brothers. Each of their stories with God are also different. Abraham has multiple conversations with God face to face throughout his life. Isaac, uh, he's got a much shorter part in the narrative, so it really just reports him praying to God on Rebecca's behalf, and that allows Rebecca to have children. And he's also told by God to stay in Canaan despite the famine. God speaks to Jacob as he's fleeing Canaan, as he's told to leave, and then he's told to go back to Canaan, and then he wrestles with Jacob before he enters Canaan. And Jacob, again, is only uh, reported to praying to God once, just before he's going to come back into the land, before he wrestles God, because he's afraid of Esau. The big difference for Joseph is there's no report of him having any direct contact with God. God kind of is just in the background of his story. We also see this big history of family deception coming and having big consequences. Leah becoming Jacob's wife through the deception of her father Laban has great mental consequences upon both her and Rachel. Leah is unloved and it caused great mental stress for her. And Rachel is barren, which again causes great mental stress for her. And this causes the two sisters to view one another as rivals and enemies rather than loving sisters. And this relationship spills out into their children. And then Joseph is also favored because he's the firstborn of the woman he loves. And this causes further jealousy and conflict between these sons. And this all culminates in Jacob the deceiver being deceived again. His sons come and lie to him and say that Joseph is killed by wild animals when they actually sold him into slavery. And sometimes when we read the story, we don't think about how awkward this is going to be at the end of the story. When the brothers come and say, oh, Joseph is in Egypt, and he's the second in command to Pharaoh. There is a very awkward conversation of, oh, yeah, we lied to you, and he's not actually dead, and we sold him, and you thought he's dead this whole time. And all that pain and sorrow that Jacob felt, it said he wouldn't be comforted, so he mourned and he grieved his son for years and years and years, all due to the deception of his own children. It's a very awkward family conversation that is had when he comes back. Joseph's story also shares a uh, similar theme with his grandfather Abraham's. It's a story of anticipation of what's coming, but barriers popping up, and God overcoming those barriers. In Abraham's story, though, we see God right up front. He's the one who's doing direct actions to overcome these barriers. But in Joseph's story, he's barely mentioned and works in the background. And the anticipation is these dreams that Pharaoh or that Joseph has 
and whether they're not whether they're going to come true or not. The bundles of wheat bowing down to him, and the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. And these barriers keep popping up. And the interesting thing about these dreams is we don't. The Bible doesn't say they come from God. They're just dreams that Joseph has. So there's nothing that says that they come from God. It's just kind of in that background, there's some ambiguity to it. But the first barrier comes when those brothers are like, let's kill him. Let's see if his dream can come true if we kill him. His life is in danger, but Reuben overcomes that barrier by preventing him to be killed, and then him being sold into slavery prevents him from being killed. But that brings up a whole other barrier. How uh, is his dream of being bowed down to by his brothers going to come true if he's in the lowly position of a slave? No one bows down to a slave. And if his entire fam- if he's in a different land than his entire family. It's kind of overcome a little bit as he raises to the head of Potiphar's household. At least other slaves are bowing down to him now. But he's still in a foreign land. And we also see this promise. I will bless you and through you you will bless the world. I will bless those who bless you. And Potiphar, by treating Joseph favorably, is blessed himself. And then he's thrown in prison. And now he's even in a worse position. He's not just a slave in a foreign country. He's an imprisoned slave in a foreign country. Who's going to bow down to him? And this ray of hope comes as these dreams are interpreted by the cupbearer and the baker. But again, the barrier comes up again. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph. And finally, Pharaoh has these dreams. And Joseph is brought before him and is unable to interpret him. And God gives Pharaoh these dreams. At least that's what Joseph says. That's Joseph's interpretation. Again, it's not like an objective declaration that God gave Pharaoh these dreams. That's just what Joseph, again, says. So now Joseph is second in command to Pharaoh. Lots of people bow down to him, but still he's in a foreign land. How is his dream's going to come true of his brothers coming to him? And that's where the famine finally drives his family in. And we have the climax of everyone bowing down before him. And then the last thing with Joseph's story is we get this really weird scenario where Joseph toys around with his brothers and doesn't reveal who he is to him right away. And what is strange about this is it really doesn't seem to serve any particular purpose. At least a purpose isn't said for why he does it. The end result is his family and Jacob all moving into Egypt, and this is to help fulfill what God has said to Abraham that we talked about many weeks ago, about how his Abraham's descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign country for a certain amount of time, and then he's going to bring them out. But Joseph didn't have to lie to his brothers for that to come true. He could have just right away say, hey, it's me, Joseph, get my father and bring him down, and would have accomplished the same purpose. And so we can kind of guess, maybe, maybe it's just to show that continued history of deception happening in the family. And now the brothers who deceived the deceiver Jacob are being deceived by their brother Joseph. Maybe it's Joseph getting revenge on his brothers, trying to make them feel really sorry for what they've done to him. But the Bible doesn't say anything about it. It leaves it open-ended. It leaves us to come and fill in some of the gaps. And in a way that allows us to 
be able to take it as a framework and maybe apply it to more situations in our lives than we would if it just gave us a straight answer why Joseph does this. And also the morality around it. Because the other part, it doesn't say that what Joseph did was wrong or what Joseph did was good. It doesn't praise or condemn his actions. It's just there. And it's an event, again, that we are left to fill in the gaps with. And this reflects our own lives because we live in an ambiguous world. We don't always know right away whether our actions or other people's actions are good or evil or if they even fit in that category. And it's in recognizing this ambiguity that can be in Scripture that we are able to fully appreciate, actually, the power that Scripture can have in our lives. The Bible doesn't always offer us straight, direct answers into our lives. But it invites us into conversation and into the wrestling and struggling with God through Scripture to seek how to faithfully live our lives in the ambiguous world we live in. If we approach the Bible as being black and white and having just direct answers, then we end up placing our own frameworks upon it, and we just find the answers that confirm what we believe already. And you see that throughout life. When slavery in North America was a thing, both sides, those who were for slavery and those who were against slavery, both used the Bible to back up their because they both tried to view it as black and white. But if we approach it as something to consider and to converse with, then we allow ourselves to be shaped by the spirit that works through it and works within us. And Joseph's story does well in showing us how to live in these uncertainties of belief. This is a quote from uh, Old Testament scholar and translator John Golden Gay. He says this, we don't always know the answer to questions like that. And the question he's talking about is, why does Joseph deceive his brothers? We don't always know the, question, the answer to questions like that. And we have to live our lives on the basis of partial insights. But we can do that in the conviction that Joseph will shortly express, that God is involved in the whole story, even if we cannot be sure of the significance of even key elements within it. And what Golengay is referring to, what Joseph expresses, is as he reveals his identity to his brothers, he says, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What they intended for evil upon Joseph, God uses for good. And God's actions are placed in the background of this story to show us that he is involved in the whole story, even if we cannot be sure of the significance of even key elements within it. That we come into uncertainty and don't know how God can be involved in this, whether there's good or there's bad in this, but knowing for sure that God is involved even with the key elements of it. 